Before we get to our guest, I want to talk about our NOAA subscription. CD Media is not just a local news company. We're not just a military company. We're not even just a national company. CDM is a global news organization that has reporters from the Middle East to Eastern Europe to the Balkans to Asia to Latin America to the United States. Put us in your daily scan and get the news, tip of the spear news from around the world. I know that people don't like ads, however. They don't like pop-up ads on their phone. They don't like to see ads on the websites. But you know what? We have to make money. Seriously, we have to support ourselves, and that's one of the ways we do it. However, if you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no-ad subscription. And guess what? You get access to our dozen newspapers around the world, our dozen news organizations, and you get access to all this quality, high-quality content. So, so give us a few bucks, sign up for your no-ad subscription, and you'll get access to all of the sites with a block on the ads, and you'll be very happy. And now let's get to our guest. Welcome, everyone. I'm Christine Dolan. This is uh, our Globalist Conversation in Plain Sight, and we are honored today to have back our dear friend of the network and this show, David Bell, who is a physician originally born in uh, Australia. He's an infectious disease expert, specifically on malaria. He's worked uh, at, at the uh, WHO World Health Organization as well as been a consultant to Gates. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Christine. And, and you're also a you're a scholar at the uh, Brownstone. Yes, Institute. Correct. I meant to say that. So, David, uh, you know, you just returned. You were in Europe. Um, you're all over. The, you know, you're traveling a lot. Let's let's talk about philosophically what is happening here in in terms of the agendas afoot to convince people that. This policy that is being pushed at the WHO for the amendments to the 2005 International Health Regulations will advance the one health philosophy. And I'm going to call it a philosophy because it's not based on science. Animals, plants, humans are encroaching upon nature and hence everything needs to be controlled by the WHO because there are many world leaders now pushing to have the health sovereignty of their countries under the control of the WHO, which means that it would be under the control of the secretary director, Pedros, his six regional directors. Is this a bunch of caca? I mean, what they're pushing in terms of science from your perspective? Um. A lot of it, yeah. It's it's a co-opting of these ideas and bending of them. Um, you, know, you mentioned One Health. Um, there's nothing wrong with One Health in that One Health is a holistic view of human health. I mean, we, you know, it, it's as old. It's a hundred thousand years old. It's as old as humans have been interested in their health. Um, the you know, 
temperature affects our health, um, bad water affects our health, food affects our health. You know, that, that's just obvious. So th there's nothing wrong with that. And But, yeah, this has been co-opted because there is, I mean, the underlying problem is that public health is being used to control populations and people are being told that everything is getting worse in health, I mean, which is the opposite of what the statistics tell us. But we're having it drilled interest that health is getting worse, that risks are getting greater. And one health is being used as this in two ways, actually. One is that we're a poison upon nature because there's too many people and we're doing all this harm and therefore we have to be stopped from doing what we're doing, impoverished and uh, impact minimised. And the other is that nature is a existential threat to us. And these are often combined, like we're told, I was reading this morning, um, the idea that climate change is somehow making humans interact with bats more, and therefore we're at some existential threat of coronavirus outbreaks from bats. Which is, which is craziness. How many well, it's craziness. I mean, people used to live with bats in their houses. It's completely crazy. I mean, when you, yes, yes, we have a problem with loss of habitat. And that doesn't, you know, when you lose habitat, and this, it actually says this, you know, we're losing habitats, therefore the wild animals move to where the humans are. I mean, this is kindergarten stuff. Of course they don't, they die. When we lose habitat, we kill the animals. The animals go away because they can't live in other habitats. And so we are having less and less interaction between humans and animals. In the Middle Ages, people lived in, you know, filthy, extremely crowded suburbs on top of rats and pigs and bats and everything else. Now we live in nice suburbia. So th this is a complete garbage, but it, it is shoved into us in, in medical journals, in the media, by WHO, etc. Over and over, we see Tedros talking about this sort of idea and it's white papers from the World Bank and so on. It's shoved into us all the time and it's completely wrong. It's completely rubbish. It has no basis in fact. But so there's obviously a reason for it because these people know it's not true yet. Um, so, yeah, so one health, there's nothing wrong with one health. There's nothing wrong with the idea of public health, obviously. But when public health becomes a tool to control people, so rather than public health being a way of advising people um, and giving them information so that they can make their own independent evidence-based decisions on what they would like to do in their context for their health. When it becomes a prescriptive thing, public health is to tell people what to do for the good of someone else or for the what the person giving the orders decides it's the good of that person. Then it's completely different. And then if you combine it with these ideas of, you know, the whole world affects our health, which in some ways it does, then you can extend, expand, expand that to say the whole world is a threat to health and therefore it's within the purview of those of us who want to control everything to do with health. So that is what is happening. And it's based on complete fallacies. And one of the ways of getting around that is by, you know, the censoring. <laughs> They're including the, the term infodemic in all these talks as if one of these existential, and they're saying this, they're saying the third or fourth biggest killer of people is misinformation. And therefore we have to control now what people say 
and think because that's also a threat to their health and our job is to control health. So this is the way that this is going and this is the, the sort of driving philosophy behind what's going on with the WHO, you know, IHR amendments, etc. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's not about public health, it's about controlling people, obviously. And, and it's not based on any truth about an increasing threat. I, there's a huge reduction in the number of people who have died from natural calamities over the last century. It is not going up, it's going down because we're better at dealing with them. You know, they're, they're, they're talking about more people dying of high temperature. It's true because there's way more old people on earth and the vast majority of that increase in people dying from high temperatures, which The Lancet's been publishing about, is related to the fact that it's accounted by the number of increase, the increase in old people and old people are more susceptible, but far more old people die of cold than of heat by many, many times over of hypothermia. But you're not allowed to say that you, we, we only talk about an increase in number of heat. We don't talk about that because there's more old people. So there's this sort of storytelling that is going on that is misrepresenting and it's by WHO, it's by senior people in public health and so on. And, um, you know, it'd be nice to talk about why this is happening, but this is, you know, it's disturbing. Well, it's, it's disturbing, but it's also intellectually dishonest because I mean, uh, completely, yes. Yeah. Let, let's unpack this. Yeah. What do you think with your background is the motivating factor behind these, what, what I call fertile grounds of agendas for, for greed? Because it seems to me mm. if you sell a certain narrative to create a business opportunity and take advantage of people's ignorance or take advantage of the fact that you've censored them or, you, or you know it with the with the end goal of controlling them from not having information it this takes the word robber barons to a new definition on a global stage do you, do you think that this is what's going on in in terms of the business side of this because why, why else would people push this narrative if they didn't have something else to gain. Yeah, and there's people gain on different levels. I, I think behind it all, yeah, it's a business. And, you know, you mentioned greed. I mean, in the end, this is this is greed um, on, a, on a grand scale. But, you know, that there's greed includes wanting money, wanting power, wanting you know the sort of the ego trip of being able to tell millions of people what to do um and i think the ego trip of being able to fly around in private jets and have fun while you know that other people are shut up and aren't allowed to so it makes you feel special and i think there's a, a lot of all of this there but we, we saw through the COVID, which is you know clearly part of this that i mean you know, the unprecedented profits hundreds of billions of dollars but this wasn't out of the blue. There has been multiple uh, meetings talking about even though, you know, lockdowns were the opposite of public health up to 2020. But they were, WHO actually produced recommendations saying never do these things in a pandemic. Um, 
When did they, when did they have that policy? Because I just learned today oh. for the first time. Because I learned something every day. I just learned that the Rockefeller Foundation in 2010 had put out a report, and it was sort of, I guess, a prediction in the <clears> futures, <throat> for lack of a better word, that you know there would be lockdowns, that the goods would come to a screeching halt, people mobility would come to a screeching halt, and that was <clears throat> in 2010. And another friend of our show, uh, James Zitlow, who's a retired colonel uh, from the Air Force, he actually was appointed to create a a pandemic preparedness plan in 2007. He was was appointed by the Secretary of Defense Gates, who um, succeeded Rumsfeld here in the United States. And... He has, a lot of it's classified, but he he did it. He created it. He was the architect, the leader of the ship. And what they determined at the time in 2007 was that there were no masks mandated. There were no vaccines mandated. There were early treatment. There were no lockdowns. It was implemented and used in 2009. I I can't remember if it was uh, H1N1 or Zika or swine flu. Okay. So that was implemented and used in 2009. And I've been trying to figure out exactly when that policy that he had for the U.S. flipped. And now I've come, come to realize in our research that in fact the Rockefeller Foundation came out with a report on pandemics in the future foreseeing mm. these lockdowns in 2010. So it's almost prophetic that people are saying, well, this is what we're going to do in the future. And then all of a sudden now, you know, it's come up that this is the only option in 2020. And looking forward in the future, this is supposedly going to be the norm. I mean, do people realize that they messed up the the former colleagues you know, WHO, and the people in the international health groups? Or are they just looking the other way? So it's mixed. So, so first, yeah, there's been two streams in public health around pandemics for the last 10, 15 years. So, yeah, there's the Rockefeller Report and there's you know, it goes on to event 201 and so on, that stream which was saying we have to lock down, we have to, etc. which is really interesting because up to 2020, you know, there'd been the Spanish flu 100 years earlier and then a couple of little influenza things in 50, the late 50s, late 60s killed you know, a million people, less than, the, less than TB every year. And then swine flu, which killed less than normally die from flu. So there was no reason from evidence, you know, that this was a problem. I mean, it's interesting that they thought there was going to be suddenly this increase in pandemics because there's no logic or historical evidence for that. But so there, there was a stream of, you know, I would say, rational orthodox public health, which was and which wrote the WHO influenza guidelines that came out in 2019, which which specifically state under no circumstances, quote unquote, do you close borders? Do you confine healthy people? Um, and, and, you know, and so on. And it envisioned maybe you'd change workplaces for seven, you close workplaces for seven to 10 days in a really severe outbreak. And, and the reason for not doing these things is because, as it stated, 
they will do more harm than good and they'll disproportionately harm low-income people low-income countries so and that's you know has a huge impact on health overall so there is this stream and you know which followed evidence and which was logical and rational and there's this other stream which is particularly influenced by people who are not from public health but happen to be from you know software or um pharma or pharma or you know the world economic forum and so corporate type people who were saying we have to control populations we have to herd them around we have to tell them what to do um you know donald henderson who is a smallpox fame in his book in the early 2000s that you know you don't instill fear that the important thing in that which is standard public health and the important thing is to give people the truth and help them through an emergency don't instill fear because that's the worst thing you can do when we hit 2020 the there is a deliberate campaign which is public now in certainly in english-speaking countries they had behavioral psychology units attached to government and they were tasked with instilling fear and behavioral psychology does this by you know and i've been involved in this in the past through public health where now, if you want someone to use a bed net, say, for malaria, mm -hmm. the idea is that you don't tell them you do this because, you know, the mosquito will bite you and carry, can maybe carry a parasite and then it will go and bite someone, etc. You You just think of any reason to get them to use a bed net because the end is what is important, not the reason that they're doing it. So it's this idea that, you know, you can instill fear. So I think a lot of these people who are doing this, you know, the people at the top who push this agenda. They, they weren't public health people, they were business people. They were, so this is clearly a business thing. It's about making lots of money out of populations on, on a scale unprecedented in human history. And that's what we're seeing from COVID-19 and what the, you know, is the agenda really pushing the pandemic preparedness? But, does, um, does, it, does it scare you, David, that the, the WHO hired, and I forgot this woman's name from, from England, they hire uh, yeah. a woman who's a behavioral scientist in a um, role at the well, WHO. It's disturbing because she was influential in what happened in the UK, where it's acknowledged that fear was deliberately used to control the population and that it was probably a mistake. Right. So, so the Peter principle applies to her. They give her a bigger job for a global yes because and i mean clearly all this was a mistake but that's not coming into the pandemic preparedness agenda the intent is to do it again even though it's clearly a mistake so there's no talk about the harm that was done there's only talk about uh you know silly things like you know we should have locked down earlier etc um which i mean is ridiculous for an aerosolized respiratory virus but um yeah, so, so a lot of the people that are doing this, they're not, you know, they're doing it because they're not really thinking it through and they're just doing what they're told. And they think, um, gee, apparently everyone has to, you know, stay in their homes or wear a mask, otherwise lots of people will die. They've sort of just been told, so I will design a program to scare them into wearing a mask and staying home. And so they, they think they're doing that for good because they're coming from a mindset where, it doesn't matter, you know, the, the person's freedom and the person's 
ability to know what's going on and make their own decisions doesn't matter. What matters is making that person do something that you perceive is for their benefit. And so it's a mindset that allows you to tell people what to do rather than giving them information respecting their choice. So, so that raises the question, what is the intent of these? I mean, is everybody just incompetent and stupid or, or sycophants or are we just people following orders because they're afraid to speak out? Yeah, it's a mixture. I've, I've had, you know, put out a paper recently on the COVAX, um, which is a mass vaccination of, um, of low middle income people for against COVID, which is, I mean, it's a travesty of public health. They're already immune. They're young, half are under 20, et cetera. They're not at risk. Other diseases are increasing, about billions of dollars are being put into injecting them with mRNA. For, they can't possibly help them from a public health point of view. And CDC data shows us. But so I write a paper on that. And you know, people tap you on the shoulder and say, um, you know, very quietly, you know, who work in these organizations, oh, Great paper, thanks for writing that. And then you know, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, they have to hold out two years for their pension so they can't say anything. And a lot of people are like that. They they know that if they speak out, it'll be the end of their career. And, you know, they may have kids in school, etc. So they, they're they scared to speak out for career reasons. Um, a lot of people, I think, just see their job as doing what they're told and they don't really think through um, you know, if people are dying, it's just numbers. It's not real people, I think, to them. Um, so how do we get how do we get humanity to step forward? I, I mean, we're we're talking about people making up excuses for financial survivability, justifying looking the other way when people are being harmed and and are dying because of these policies, from an economic point of view and from a health point of view. Hmm. How, how, how do we turn this ship around? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, where are the people who fussed about, you know, female, female genital mutilation or child marriage? You know, we've got millions of girls forced into child marriage for all this, and most of these people seem to be cheering it on. Where are the human rights activists who are concerned about, um, you know, lack of democracy or... Um, you know, child labor, etc., which is all increasing because of what happened in COVID, closing schools, etc. Where are these people? They're cheering on the lockdowns and saying we should lock down more. Um, so, anyhow, we've seen this before in human history, um, not on a global scale so much, perhaps, but in within countries where you know totalitarian fascist regimes get into power and people just toe the line. Um, so most of the people we know who said they would stand up for human rights before 2020, we know now we're just saying that because it was a popular thing to do <clears throat> and they won't really do it if there is a actual risk to them. Um, That's right. That's right. That, that I, I have to agree with you. I, the, the, I think the, the most surprising, most surprising thing to me, and it was shocking, it was head snapping to me. It was seeing Western civilization who claimed to be for human rights basically buried their heads in the sand and they lost any moral courage. Yeah. They were afraid to speak out. I mean, I can't be more disgusted with Western civilization as yeah. I 
and, and, and surprise in the last three years because we're talking about children, we're talking about families, uh, the normalization of insanity, because mm. a lot of this is insanity and it's also commodifying human beings to yeah. the point that they're data points, they're just collateral damage. Take one for the team, don't worry about your next door neighbor. It's just, it's extraordinary time in history. Yeah, we see people like Fauci saying, you know, wear three masks and um, it's and then coming out and saying masks made very little difference or saying, you know, the vaccine will stop transmission in 2021 and then publishing a paper earlier this year saying it was never going to stop transmission because systemically he injected vaccines for coronaviruses will never work effectively at stopping transmission and giving all the reasons why that he knew at the time. So, and people still applaud these people, even though they are saying, look at me, I lied to you two years ago. Here's the proof. I'm writing it down in a paper. I'm publishing it, my I'm name. I'm publishing it in a good journal. And, and, they, and people still say they'll do whatever this person tells them. So, and they, they claim to have credibility when in fact they have proven that their inconsistencies were lies, were, were baseless. Yes, they, they, they knew they were speaking something that was wrong. So they can say, oh, that was for the greater good. I lied for the greater good. But um, then you have to accept that that's a, a legitimate way of, you know, living your life and doing business. But um, sorry, I... I it's okay, but David, David, tell me about your observations, though, because you and I have talked for a long time now, just about, you know, with, with your background. And are, are you disappointed in, in your colleagues in the international health field? Yeah, I remember what I was going to say, which is relevant to that question. So you said Western civilization. I think that's a bit strong. I think the leadership, supposedly, of Western civilization and those prominent in the media, those prominent in our institutions, they're extremely disappointing and they've been shown to be hollow mostly. But the ordinary people, I'm not sure um, that they're that bad. I, I think, you know, uh, where I live now, a lot of people see through this. They're not health people, they're not medical people, they just got functioning brain in their head and a bit of integrity so they can see through what's going on and they're brave enough to talk about it. So I think a lot of people see this, but the leadership of Western civilization and I our institutions. Have too, I meant, yeah. I meant Western civilization leadership. I mean, I mean I'm, yeah. I'm horrified from, from Trudeau, from Biden, from yes. Fauci. Mm. Francis Collins, uh, I mean, it, you know, it is extraordinary to me. And that nobody has, nobody has really, well, I should say, some people have come out and talked about the competition, you know, in science, in pharmaceuticals, um, industry, you know, and how cutthroat it is. But the manner in which it was displayed from the top down, to the ER rooms, to the doctors, to the mm. hospital administrators, you know, to pushing remdesivir on patients for, for not taking care of patients in the hospitals. Mm. It, it, it's, I, I just find this. For, for advocating that patients should not be allowed to go to hospital or even now refusing organ transplants because they haven't been injected with mRNA with all that we know now 
they are at the minimum the lack of efficacy of these injections. Uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. So where do we go from here? How, how do, is is are we at that tipping point where there's a break in the glass ceiling and the light comes into the tunnel and we're going to see things change, or are we still behind the dark wall, not knowing how to get out of it? Do we have enough people on our side saying enough is enough? It's hard to know, isn't it? So there's two directions at the moment, isn't there? There is an increase, I think, in people seeing that there's something deeply wrong. There's a, you know, they realise that the media has not been telling them the truth by and large, and therefore there's a lack of trust in the media. Um, they're realising that leaders of across political parties are seem to be working for other entities rather than the people of the country. So as we see, you know, and, and that, I mean, those entities tell us, so we have Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum tell us, you know, that he has infiltrated cabinets with his, the people he has trained and that they do, why they do this, so that they can control the agenda and get people to follow the agenda that they have. Um, so people are starting to, by and large, get, you know, a lot of people understand that, although I think that's more, uh, it, it's people who are more, perhaps, is, you know, more sort of manual labourers or so on, uh, less educated, college-educated people, I think, are seeing this better. And I, I think that must reflect the fact that college education is now, it's not so much telling you how to think, but it's telling you what to think. So it's much harder for more college-educated people to get through all this and, you know, really look at what's going on. Um, but there are more politicians who are, um, there's always been some who have seen what's going on. I think there's more that are willing to stand up and speak about it uh, across Western countries. Um, but at the same time, we have this seemingly, um, you know, it's completely agreed narrative from the major institutions like the WHO, the World Bank, the UN and so on, plus the major medical journals, plus the major media, all telling us these fallacies about, uh, you know, increasing threats from nature, increasing threats from other humans, increasing threats from climate, etc., that um, don't stand up to you know, three minutes of inspection if you stop and think them through. But they're repeated over and over again. And, you know, uh, a, lot of some, a lot of my colleagues, you know, I'll just raise this carefully with them and you just hear the word climate denier or COVID denier or something. And they're just repeating, they're not thinking it through. They're just repeating these terms that they've been told to, repeat when they're triggered by a certain word or set of or phrase. And so it's extremely difficult to get the people at that level to actually stop and talk through any of these issues. And I found it hard on some of these a few years ago when, you know, I saw COVID was what well, COVID was because it is my field and I could see that it was just the response was wrong. And so the, then it took quite a while to realize that it was the same people 
funding other narratives and you you know funding the same groups who are doing the same modeling and the same tactics of denigration and cancelling of anyone who sort of stood up and said hey let's talk about this rationally so is this a cult david It seems to be, doesn't it, in that it is based on a dogma that can't be questioned, um, that any open discussion is considered heresy. You know, we, we hear these terms like the science is fixed. The science right. is fixed on climate change. The science is fixed on Tell climate change. I, I, and that isn't science. That is a cult. That is a religion. Yeah, but mm -hmm. worse than that, it's a cult. Um, you know, most religions, they, there's a, you know, theology is a study of religions and you can discuss what's going on in a cult. You can't. These are the fixed things that you must abide by. And there is no deviation from that. And that's what we're seeing around this. And so, yeah, it, but it, you know, if you look at those who, again, again, knowing cults, we, we know the classic cults where, you know, it turns out the cult leader has a stable full of 15 Rolls Royces and half a dozen private jets. So this is the same on a larger scale. I mean, the leaders of this cult, uh, they have made over the last few years hundreds of billions of dollars and they're standing right. to make far more. That And that's, that's the part I, I, it dawned on me probably about 18 months ago when I started investigating the business model that this is based on and there's no room for any discussion or discrepancy or mm. it, it's, uh, you know, and then you take a look at the hypocrisy of some of these people and you realize don't do as I do, do as I say and there's no room for discussion I mean, that is yeah. a definition of a cult. And it comes to open denial of reality. I was reading in the NASA today this climate change article from, from a year ago. It talks about the devastation of the Barrier Reef in Australia as an example. And, you know, the Barrier Reef in Australia has measurably more coral than it's had for a couple of decades. It's not being devastated. Um, that and doesn't mean climate change is right. It does, I mean, climate, the climate changes, of course, there is such a thing as climate change. It doesn't mean that there's not an anthropogenic major influence or a minor influence or no influence. It's just a fact that the coral is doing okay at the moment. But they, but but, they deny but You can't say that. You have to say it's doing badly. You have to lie to be part of this. And you print that lie in a journal and you print it over and over again, and people will repeat it. And they'll hear somewhere that actually it's not true, but they'll dismiss that and they'll just keep repeating the lie. And so, yeah, that, that's, I think that's a sign of a cult. And, that, and you know about coral reefs because you're originally from Australia. <laughs> yeah, and I used to dive on coral reefs and so on. But, um, and, you know, I, I was, I'm interested in the environment. I mean, climate is interesting. It's a good example. Um, because, I, you know, personally, I think I'm not a climatologist. I think there probably is this anthropogenic change in climate. You know, what we're doing is changing the climate. I think from, you know, reading the best I can, that there's also 
very major other or I know there are major other in influences because Pollution. because I know you know I always I'm interested in biking and history and so on I know that they were running cattle and growing barley in Greenland a thousand years ago mm -hmm. and you know the glaciers are melting around Juneau and Alaska and they I've read that they're finding tree trunks where the glaciers are melting which means that 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, it was warmer. You know, there used to be forests up to the Arctic Ocean. It was much warmer then. The, the you know, CO2 has increased. It's doubled over the last century or so. And that has allowed plant growth to increase so we can grow more crops and feed more people. Uh, that's a fact. It doesn't mean overall CO2 is rising is good or bad. It's just a fact. The CSIRO in Australia has noted this from satellite data. But um, saying that can get you cancelled and called a climate and denigrated and called a climate denier. And there's nothing false in what I just said. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to reduce fossil fuels in a way that doesn't impoverish lots of people. Um, you know, putting up the price of fossil fuels will increase deforestation in East Africa because cooking fires are the main cause of deforestation. The alternative is fossil fuels. You take them away and you increase deforestation. So if you want to preserve the environment in East Africa, increasing the price of fossil fuels may be the worst thing that you could do, certainly over the next few decades. So, you know, we have to think these things through, but we're not allowed to because there is a dogma that we have to stick to. So maybe maybe we're maybe maybe we're becoming addicted to intellectual dishonesty at a very high level of leadership for an agenda, for a business or for control yeah. or possibly depopulation, you know. It's. I mean, it's a very interesting time, and I still yeah. I advocate for people, you know, reading history, understanding, connecting with God. What is the next step for you? Because you have a wealth of information and experience, and you've worked at the highest levels, and you still, you know, you still talk to these people, and you still consult with these people. Have you thought? Have you thought through how you're going to approach this in the future? Or are you still working through that? Which you know, I can understand if that's the case. Uh, I think that those of us who think differently to, or either think differently to the majority, or are willing to admit that we think differently to the majority, we need to stay engaged, and you know, like. You know, I was saying the concept of one health, of a holistic view of health, is not an intrinsically bad thing. It's an intrinsically good thing. Weaponizing that for profit and for the impoverishment of the majority is a bad thing. Mm. But we have to separate these out. So it, we can't abandon these concepts and stop being engaged. The idea of having international health organizations that allow us to share information good place to meet, a neutral place to meet, to discuss things that are happening across borders um, that can give technical support where it's asked for to countries that lack that technical capacity is a good thing. But having an international health organisation that tells people what to do 
and that centralizes health, which is a terrible way to run health, especially on a global scale. And that is clearly, you know, is directively funded and supported by people who have a vested interest in, you know, selling products and corralling people. That's obviously a bad thing. You know, in a democracy, you can't have someone like the WHO dictating health policy. It's it's, it's a non-starter. It's completely the opposite of democracy. Um, you know, because the WHO is run by it's very heavily influenced by private interests, by non-democratic states, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, we need to stay engaged in all this, but we need to um, change or get rid of organisations that are clearly a negative to the world and try to build organizations that are small and limited and end, you know, can serve humanity without of you know being corrupted so quickly. I don't I don't know how you how you do that exactly uh, because humans are humans. But I think any organization that's been there for 40 or 50 years is probably there for too long in this sort of field. You know, we've seen that as we're talking about human rights organizations. I said, I mean, where on earth are they in all of this the last few years? Yeah. I mean, they're clearly the people running those see the integrity of the organization as more important than its mission. Like we saw with the Catholic Church, where, you know, the Catholic Church is, you know, very well because it protected yeah. pedophile priests because it saw the importance of preserving the reputation of the institution as more important than the mission of the institution. And the people in the WHO I know who, who is virtually say that, and we see it in the UN where the Human Rights Commission <clears throat> has covered up human rights abuses by UN personnel. Uh, and it's right. well known in public. So uh, I, I think we have to have a, a structure where we really limit these organizations. We, they have a very limited, you know, limited role for a limited time. And then we build a new one and we don't let them ossify. We don't let them become, um, you know, a world unto themselves sort of the, we don't let them become the reason for their own existence. Well, and the irony of it is, is that the, the, the UN was created in the 1940s after World War II. The WHO was created based upon the mission statement of the United Nations, which includes human rights. So if you have an entity yeah. within the UN that's oxymoron to the mission of it, and it's it, possibly the question should be, should, we, should everybody get out of the WHO at this point in time when they don't stand for human rights and they are being funded by countries that are funding the UN? Yeah, it, it, it was... It was started in a time, uh, you know, when we were trying to get rid of fascism and, you know, decolonization was in full swing. And now, it, I mean, now it's clearly a force for fascist-type policies and for colonization, for centralized global control by the West, mainly, um, to some extent, other, you know, big geopolitical entities of people in low-income countries. And we saw that through COVID where, you know, these insane policies, it was like the British or French in their colonial days, you know, 
imposing policies on millions and millions of people that will clearly harm them and couldn't possibly benefit them in low-income countries. And we just, we're seeing the world going back in this direction. So, yeah, I mean, we need a new decolonization. It probably means removing these institutions and replacing them with something much smaller and with a very different, you know, more aware constitution, I think. We need ethics. We need ethics on a global scale right now. To, yeah. uh, and, and that's and possibly that's the next step that we, we have to work on is having ethical leadership and institutions that do no harm. And if they do, we have to get rid of them. That may be the next step. David Bell, thank you so much. We always appreciate your critical thinking and your intellect. You make us smarter with our audience. Thank you very much. Thanks, Christine.